going to be learning what is quite obvious. Everybody, everybody who's learned or studied Yiddishkeit always hears about this, but today I think we're going to do it inside and get even stronger within the area. I'm going to read the puzzle, and then I'm going to tell you what we're going on. It says the puzzle that um, this is in this week's parsha told us. Vayikra Yitzchak Yaakov, and Yitzchak calls his son, calls for his son Yaakov. Vayavarcho, so and he blesses him. Father blesses his child. By the way, that itself is an amazing thing in the crazy world that we live in. I, <laughs> I, I have in the high school that I created over here. We have <laughs> not every boy, but you just can feel the sadness in some of the relationships between the parents and the children. You know, so when the pasuk says here, "Vayikra Yitzchak Yaakov." The Yitzchak called his father Yaakov by so he blessed him. I think probably a hundred years ago that would be like, or maybe fifty years ago. Like, what's the big deal? It's a big deal to bless your child when you see your child. It's a big deal. So Friday night I blessed my children, and my wife started doing it. It's a big deal to bless your child to to say something nice about your child. It's amazing. And then after he blessed him, and this is the this is the point of the Chavetzlaim. I'll read it to you inside. He says, and then he commanded after he made the blessing. And Yitzchak says to Yaakov, I don't want you to marry the women of Canaan. Whatever we know, the reason was because the people of Canaan had bad midos personality traits, and we're worried about genetic pass, you know, the, the continuity of bad genetics when it comes to Midos. You know, obviously, physical genetics are passed on, but there's a belief that different, different people pass on the, you know, the, the, the emotional, spiritual genetics also. So the Chavetz Chaim writes on this, and I, I want you to hear these words because, again, I don't. I'm not going to say any chidushim. There's not going to be anything that you're going to walk away with like, "Wow, that was like, oh wow, wow." But the concepts, these are very, I think, especially for people who are young and are going to be having children or have children, how to deal with children, how to deal with people. So this, I'm going to read you what the Chavetz Chaim writes over here. On this pasuk, he says, The Torah is giving us a very strong message. If you want to have an influence on your child, and you want to keep him on the straight path and not get involved with bad things, you can't yell at him. Don't, don't, don't give him rebuke in a tough way. But follow the approach that Yitzchak did. What did he do? The first thing is First, he gave him a blessing. Show your child that you love him. Okay, and then and Diber Elav Rakos 
and speak to him sweetly and bless him. And it was only after he did that, that he spoke to his child, and he said, I say, Imi Chesed Bini, do you know? Do me a favor, Lo Sikach Isha. I don't want you to take any women from that place. But the first thing was not. I'm the father. I have a, you know. You listen to me. I had. I just got a call just now, a minute ago. What was this there in the story? Can you turn this off for a second? Or not really. And we all need to do that because we all have people around us, you know. Sometimes we have to make believe we don't hear anything. You know what I'm talking about? Not hearing anything? You know what I mean? Like when somebody says something nasty, you just like, well, you have to answer also. Otherwise you have to just not know. So my Rebbe was Rav Pam. This is just... This is on the side, but I think it has to do with all relationships. And, and I, I just, again, I, I know that this is not chidushim, but I think it's important. So Rav Pam was my rabbi. Now, Rav Pam, for anybody who doesn't know, he, his midos were, I mean, it wasn't only because he was a gadol. There are big rabbis who are good people, but their midos, you know, you know, I don't want to say they're lacking, but they might say something harsh, they might, uh, you've met, you've all met rabbis that sometimes things, they might say something or do something, right? Right? Yeah? Maybe? Rapam was beyond that. He, the man was just, he was an angel of a man. So one day he got up, it was right before Shavuos, and he asked the question. Now at the time that he asked this question, I was teaching in Esha Torah. And in Esha Torah, there was a very strong, I mean, this is old, this is like a very old school approach because, I mean, whatever. In Aisha Torah, there was a strong emphasis with teaching what they used to call, this is in nineteen mid-1980s, they used to call the proofs of God and the veracity of the Torah. They would have classes proving that the Torah was real and would also and and not only the Torah was real, but that there was God, that there was a God, and they have all these proofs. Now that's an old school Lithuanian approach, and it's not just Lithuanian. Um, the Rambam and the 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 non-Kabbalists go with that approach. The Kabbalistic approach and the Mekubalim and the Hasidim do not. They don't negate that idea of, like, there were 600,000 Jews at Mount Sinai, and you can't tell 600,000 people that they saw something that they didn't see. All other religions, let's say, for example, in Christianity, you never have a group of people that saw that claimed to see Jesus resurrected. You had one or two apostles and whatever, but you don't have that group of 600,000 so that was for that. So that 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 was the approach found in the Kuzari as to how do you know the Torah is true. So this was a big deal in ancient the time, you know, uh, to to show the veracity and the real realness of the Torah. Hasidim, as I said, and Kabbalists did not go with this approach. They felt rather that every Jew, deep down, has the has the, the Jewish soul. And therefore, if you can just remove a little bit of the mud, 
the gold will show forth. So they're not opposed to, let's say, hearing about that proof of 600,000 in Mount Sinai. But they're not going to put the emphasis on that. They're going to say, rather, do a mitzvah, put on tefillin, which will remove a little bit of the dirt that you have on your soul, and then the light will show forth itself. It's a different approach to uh, Amuna altogether. And then, of course, is the third, which is the experiential. When you meet somebody who's really holy, or you experience Shabbos, or your Simchas Torah, or something, and you can't really put it into, you don't, you can't, it's not provable in the sense of these are glasses, I could prove that I have them in my hand, but there's an experiential element, which is a different pro- approach altogether. So, Rav Pamgad, having, so at that time, I was teaching in Asia, just important to put into perspective. So Rupam got up and he said, this is, right, this is the week before Shavuos, he said, what were the tools that Naomi used to influence, he used the word Mekarev, to be Mekarev Rus, to become Jewish. What were the tools that she used? Okay, fair question. Now there's a Gemara Megillah. It's probably found other places, but there's a Gemara Megillah that says that a person's name defines, in some sense, who they are, or who they should be. Such a thing. So the Gemara says that Naomi, or comes from the who the woman who was Makara, who brought Ruth close. Naomi comes from the word Rav Palm said, Noam, which means pleasant, sweet. And Rav Palm went on to say that her ways were sweet. It was her midos, her good character traits, which attracted Rus to, to her. And as it says in the Pasuk, the way of the Torah is sweet and pleasant. And if it's not, no, Rapam said, and if it's not sweet and pleasant, it's not derachah. On his gravesite, on the, on the Jackie, or not on the Jackie, but right off the Jackie, he had the quote of Dirachad Rachay Noam is on his gravesite, which means the way of God, the way of the Torah is, is pleasant. But he added on, he said, if it's not pleasant, it's not the way of the Torah. So I went over to Rav Palm and I said to him, I said to him, but what about all the proofs? Remember, because at that time I was in Aisha Torah, I was locked in to proving God's existence. They, they stopped, they went from that, then they went to that it wasn't proofs to God, but it was rather. Um, like theorems of God, I don't know, whatever, but they moved away a little bit from that. But bottom line is, I said, what about all the proofs and everything? And Rupam said to me, he said, Yehuda, all that other stuff is very important, but that's not what attracts and brings people close. And the same thing with children. You could be giving, you could be this great Talmud Chacham. I saw this with my own eyes. There was, in Jerusalem, there's a big Mekubo of Gamliel Rabinowitz. I don't know you guys have ever heard of Rav Gamliel. He's probably the biggest makubal in Israel. The first time I met him, I was there with my son Yossi. I was sent to go to him to get advice about Yossi because Yossi was learning Kabbalah and we felt that maybe he wasn't getting the information from the right sources. We didn't know. It wasn't like we were questioning. It's like, I don't know anything about it. It's like if I go to a doctor who claims he's a neurosurgeon, and I have no idea about neurosurgeons, so you have to ask somebody. So I went to Mike Weinberger, and Mike Weinberger said, I don't really know. I don't know. 
about, you know, but I know who does know. So he sent me to Rav Gamliel. I go to Rav Gamliel, and it's a whole story there, but the bottom line is, this man, who is considered amongst, if not the biggest Makubal in Israel, and therefore in the world, he's certainly amongst the biggest. He's sitting there with his tefillin on all day, and his little kid came in, and while he was doing what, learning whatever, and he wanted a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and the and Rav Gamliel stopped immediately to you know to make him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with his tefillin on, because that is pleasant. That's Torah. That is the pleasant way. Versus the person that says, "I'm learning now. Can't can't be involved." You know, Rav Gamliel once like, so talking about him. There was I was uh, the, I, I was uh, there's a sitting and talking to Rav Gamliel. And a guy came in, and Rav Gamliel said, uh, why are you here? We're having a private audience. And he said, my Rosh Hashai just got engaged, and my Rosh Shiva just sent me in to talk to you. So Rav Gamliel, to hear your advice about marriage. So Rav Gamliel said to this, uh, to this guy, so uh, is it on right now? You can put it on. So Rav Gamliel said, Tell me what your rabbi told you. So he said that he told me that we have to set down the rules right away. Number one is my hours of learning to, to my wife, my future wife. My hours of learning have to be defined and there can be no disturbance at all. And when I'm learning, the children, when they come, cannot be involved whatsoever. Not only that, but there's no disturbances whatsoever. I cannot help you when it comes to cleaning the house or go shopping, because my job is to sit and learn, and obviously you want me to do that, and therefore that has to be top priority, and you cannot interrupt in any way. So if Gamliel looked at him, he said, he said to the guy, so your Rosh Shiva, your rabbi gave you a prescription of how to get divorced, basically. That, that's what he said. Because it's not, it's not the way. It's not the Noam. So when we talk about rebuking people or being with people, it has to be in a way where the child says, my father absolutely loves me. That brings me to the next story on that, that topic. It's an amazing story. It's amazing. Now, the biggest, in, when we think of big rabbis in America, who do we think of? We think of Ramosha Feinstein, right? We think of Ramosha Feinstein, like big rabbi. So Ramosha had two sons. And one day, he was sitting with Rabbi Pesach Kron, the author. Okay, now I, I heard it from Pesach Kron, and I read it in the book. Both things. And one day, Pesach Kron asked Rabbi Ruven Feinstein, that's the younger one who's still alive, he asked Ruven Feinstein, how did your father balance communal obligation with family responsibility, which is, a, which is a very good question. How does a leader balance communal obligation with family responsibility? So Ramon Feinstein answered that there really wasn't the problem because we knew my father loved us. We knew our father loved us. So that's like a, like a, a walk-in, you know? Like, so he, so Pesel Crone asked Ramon Feinstein, and how did you know your father loved you? You know, like, like, you know, like, right in there. So listen to this. He said, I'll tell you three stories. 
he said, you know, Ramosha Feinstein, do you know who Ramosha Feinstein was? Yes. So Ramosha Feinstein lived on the Lower East Side. He lived actually on the FDR Drive service, right off the service road. And maybe Malcolm Siegel's building, right? I don't know. Maybe it could be. But mm-hmm. he right down over there. And it gets cold there. And these were old tenement buildings. So Ramosha used to get up at like 1 o'clock in the morning. And then he used to learn until davening. And then he would go to the yeshiva. That's what he did. In the winter time, this is what Ruben Feinstein said. He would, early in the morning, before the children had to get up to go to school, to yeshiva, he would take his, his their clothing, he had two sons, take their clothing, and put the clothing on the radiators so the clothing would be really toasty warm. That, that's the words that he used, toasty warm. And then he would dress them under the blankets and then go back and continue learning. This is the God of Hador who's dealing with issues like Siamese twins being separated with all sorts of stuff that stopped his learning to put... And he didn't say, my wife should do it or forget that. Who does that? That was case number one. Case number two, he said, was that in the summertime they went to a bungalow colony and he would learn he would learn with his sons you know during the day until the hay truck they i think with a hay ride it would have like a pickup truck with hay you know straw or hay on it and every day it would take the kids around and when that would happen Ramosha would say to his children you know go spielzach you know go go play and we all know how many fathers like get really strict. You know, we're learning now. We're not going to waste our time with shtusim and stupidity. That's for babies, and we're learning whatever. You know, you have to. No, no, you got to go play ball with the kids. You know, the third thing he said was that no matter who came to his house, and this is like very interesting. I mean, I know myself that my kids are older now, but at the time when they were younger, it was an important thing that I learned from Moshe's story. He said, no matter who came to the house, I always had my seat on the Shabbos table. You know, this is my, where I sat. It wasn't like I was being pushed away. Oh, we have, uh, the Cohen family is coming. They just came from Brazil for the Shabbos. Uh, Shmuley, you know, he moved it down. No. Because the little, little kids are human beings also. And he felt that that's how he knew his father loved him. Actually, I, I just skipped one point to the story since I want to have, you know, accurate transparency. The question was, how do you balance communal responsibility with, uh, with, with family obligation? And Ruben Feinstein said that there was a case where the Aguda Convention had asked him to be the main speaker. And it was the same Shabbos as his grandson's bar mitzvah. That's conflict. And so the answer was he went to the Aguda convention on Shabbos and they had the bar mitzvah on Thursday or Monday. And that's when he said, did that bother you? And that's when Rebbe Feinstein said, it didn't bother me because we knew that he loved us and that's where the story went. But just uh, just to be fair on that, there's a, there was a, another great tzaddik in the same. This is talking about 
empathy and dealing with people. This story is unbelievable. There's a great Sadiq, you probably, I always talk about him, you should read the book. It's called, you don't mind me telling stories, do you? No, I, I actually story. like story time. I love stories. Um, it, it, his name was Rev. Arya Levine, and there's many volumes. Apparently, your, your mother started reading it, I think, or somebody here. Oh, no, the guy with the big pay is his wife started reading it after, you know, the long big pay is, you know, I don't know his name. But his wife started reading it because I told him to read it. It's amazing. The man, he, big Makubal in Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Yashu's father-in-law, and he used to go to the jails to help out the prisoners. It's a, it's unbelievable. It's worthwhile reading. So there was in Jerusalem, and you know how Jerusalem Jews can get, well, all Israelis, but they can get pretty tough. They were trying to get all the stores to close on Shabbos. You know? And there was one store that was not closing down. You know? The more that the and and the Israelis they were demonstrating against the store they were they were going to get this store to close down you know that's what they were going to do the more that they did that the more the Israeli you know the owner of the store was like we are not going to be closing this Shabbos whatever so Ravari Levine who was right before Shabbos he was an older man at the time went to the mikvah got ready for Shabbos. And he goes to the store, which is open, and he goes inside, and he's, but he's dressed for Shabbos. And he asks the proprietor, the owner of the store, if it's okay, could he sit by in, like, in the front? He'll just sit, he wants just to sit there. So the man, you know, okay, it's this old rabbi wants to sit in the store. I think it was a hardware store or something like that. But he said, yeah. So Ravari Levine is sitting there for long period of time, an hour, two hours. Until in Israel, there are two sirens that go off uh, to, to you know, prepare you for Shabbos. Until the first siren went off. At that point, Rabari Levine went to the owner, you know, said to him, have a good Shabbos, and proceeded to walk out. So the owner said to him, you know, Rabbi Levine, let me ask you a question. Why were you sitting here? What was this about? And Rabari Levine said, it's obviously a big test for you to be able to close on Shabbos. It's obviously hard for me. He said, and I don't really understand why it's hard. So I came to see all the business that you're getting so that I can empathize, or rather, not empathize, I can sympathize with you to understand what you're going through. And he said, now I understand. Now I understand, because I see how much business you have. You know? So the owner said to him, up until now, everybody who came to me telling me to close Shabbos wasn't interested in me, wasn't interested in understanding how hard it is to close your store when all week you're not making anything, and then Friday afternoon everybody's showing up for whatever reason. Nobody was interested in me. They were interested in their, either in Shabbos or in their mission or whatever, or getting a notch on the belt. That's what they were interested in. He said, you're the first one that cared about me and understanding what I'm going through. 
And he said, and the story obviously ends in an upbeat, that he said, I'll close the, sh I'll close the store for you. But it's a message. How often, I'm 64 years old, I'm very disconnected from when I'm listening, I mean, unless I try, when I'm listening to and I'm watching the guys who are totally addicted to their phones, not a little addicted. 15-year-old boys right now, are they're not a little addicted. They are as addicted to the phone as we're addicted to breathing. I mean, they, they can't stop. They can't do it. You know, but how many older people, older meaning 40-year-olds, understand that? And don't just say, we put down the damn phone already. Put it down already. That might be true, and that might be how we feel about it. But and I, that's probably not a good example. But the concept, to understand what people go through, you know, what's easy for one person. And growing up as a child, is it's not so simple. It's not so simple. Not so simple. We have to try. We have to try as parents, as husbands, as Hashem, and future as husbands. We have to figure out what it's like, what's going, what's ticking in the brain. On the other side of that, I'm going to read you a Gemara, which is, uh, you got to be really sensitive to this stuff. I, again, I apologize that there's no fire. I'm not giving fire or like weird stuff tonight. This is more. But this is real. This is no, but this is real. This is real stuff because you got to deal. Is, yeah. You got to deal with your children. I'm going to read you this gemara. It's uh, actually a sifra. Sifra is a um, is the equivalent of the gemara on Vayikra. What happened was the Tanayim, they made a, they. You have the gemara, which is halachas and all the story, everything there. Then they also took Bereshish, Shemos, Vayikra, and they put Talmudic thoughts connected on it. So Vayikra is called Sifra. Okay, meaning it has the same power as a Gemara. Amr Rabbi Tarfon. So Rabbi Tarfon. Now Rabbi Tarfon was one of the teachers of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Tarfon is the person in the Gemara that says that when he, he would wash his mother's feet, when she would go to bed, and then he would drink the water because it was his mother. It's a little crazy. Rabbi Tarfon was the person that, as his mother would walk toward the bed, he would. The Tosa says he would put his hands under her feet so her feet would not get cold, and he would do that. The Gemara says Tosa says about Rabbi Tarfon, how could he do that? Isn't that embarrassing? I mean, he's a great. He's Rabbi Akiva's Rebbe. And he's drinking the water for dirty feet. He's putting his hands underneath her, her foot as she walks. And the Gemara says this was what he felt was the ultimate of Kibbutz You know, so what a great person. So he said, "I'm Rabbi Tarfon." Rabbi Tarfon said, "Havoda, I swear, that there's nobody in this generation that knows how to give rebuke." That's what he said about his generation. There's nobody. Because to be able to give rebuke, you have to love the person. You have to be able to feel the person. You have to not embarrass the person. So Rabbi Tarfon said, there's nobody in the generation. Um, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, he says, he swore, he said, there's nobody in this generation that can handle receiving Rebuke. You know, let's forget about giving rebuke. 
There's nobody can handle it. There was a big Talmud, a big tzaddik. It was a big Rosh His name was Rav Hutner. Rav Hutner was the founder of Chaim Berlin in Brooklyn. Rav Hutner was a massive Talmud Chacham. He was very sharp. He used to call. Now he he was. Nah, you're too young. Nobody here would remember this. Maybe you. Um, in 19, there was a thing called Black September. Ever hear of Black September? The terrorist. What would what would happen? In Jordan, good, good. It was after Munich, in Jordan. The they got rid of. They sent out all. They threw all the terrorists out of Jordan. So the terrorists, what they did was they they hijacked five, seven forty sevens, landed them in the middle of the Jordanian desert, and decided they're going to blow them up, and kill everybody. That's what they did. That's it was called Black September. Because it was September where they got them all out of out of Jordan. But they blew up five planes in the middle of the Jordanian desert. So one of the people on the plane was this Rav Hutner. And, and he ate his passport. Because it would not be a good thing for a big rabbi to have a passport. So he ate his passport. I mean the part with the picture. You know. That's crazy. But that's what you do, Right? You got to do what you got to do. Eat the passport. So he used to call his generation, which is in the in the late sixties, I guess, early seventies, right? That time period, he called it the grape the grape juice generation. He said that the society is so weak that the average person or many people can't even drink wine. Forget about strong wine, right? We're not talking about. 12% alcohol or whatever. We're talking about just like the, you know, Moscato, which is really pretty much like 7-Up. But rather, he said it's the grape juice generation that we're so weak, we don't have it. So Rabbi, so Rabbi uh, what's his name, Eliezer ben said that there's nobody his time, and he was one of the nine. Again, at the same as Rabbi Akiva, that they were contemporaries. He said there's just nobody that can accept rebuke. So you gotta be careful. Ever hear people like they'll yell at their kids or at whatever at people, and they're saying, you know, I don't understand when I went to school. I used to hear this when I'm again I'm 64, so I heard from Holocaust survivors. When I went to yeshiva, there was no food. We had a sardine, and if we had a sardine on black bread, it was a great. Well, that's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. Because it's a different time period. Maybe. I don't know what was going on in Europe. Maybe a sardine was a party. You know, I don't know. But it just doesn't, doesn't match Carvel. It just doesn't. And if you try to make it, it's not, but a lot of parents will do that. You'd be surprised. They don't want to give them things. They don't want to take it. Or they'll bring up, you know, I'm going on a vacation, but I never went on a vacation. Stop it. The kid feels bad. What are you doing? What are you doing? Don't do it then. If you don't want to do it, then don't do it. You know? If it bothers you enough, then don't do it. But don't do it. Recognize that you're dealing with a generation that's very weak. I mean, do you agree we're very weak? I mean, we're... Do you know how many people... Thank you. Thank you. Are, are, um, if you call that generation the grapefruit generation, I, we're not. We're, I thank you. I'll tell you where we're at. We're on the Poland, spring. We're in a we're snowflake Poland spring. We can't drink straight water from the stupid tap because there might be a little dust in it. You think it's not a joke? I mean, why do we? You're the dust. Yeah, hi, Dina.
not a doctor. But we have a lot of allergies. A lot of allergies. Nobody was allergic to peanuts. 50 years ago. There's nothing. What allergic? Why? From what I read, I don't know if it's accurate, that the problem is that people are not eating dirt or junk. They're not playing tackle football. Nobody's... They don't... Gosh, I don't, I don't care. I don't care. No, leave it on. What the <laughs> hell is this idea of flag football? A boy should be playing... F- tackle. Tackle, I was going to say. So. A boy's got to... you got to get rough, get hurt, get in the ground with a little flag... Pull a flag out of the guy's tuch or something. I'm not being said. No, I'm not being serious. It's not. But you got to know it. So would Rabbi, what, what, the, the reason I think that this Gemara is existing is to tell you that we're not as tough. We're just not. They're not made as tough. So don't expect that. Or we'll do it differently. If you, you know, raise children and you're and you have them in a situation where they're all going to be paratroopers. I know kids that are very tough, and they're gonna, they could be paratrooper type of children. You know what I mean? There's some people like that. So then, then you can talk to them tough. But if you have little dandelions who are afraid of their shadow because mommy, like, you know, you understand what I'm saying, then, then you can't treat them tough and understand that because you made the problem or society made the problem, so you got to deal with the problem. you got to deal with it. But that's how I have to treat with the people. Now, I just want to read one Gemara here. One, I'm sorry, one, one Kedusha slave because it's. I think it's Kedai. The Kedusha slave was Levi. It's. A, but you got. You don't have to agree with me. I think I'm right. Bardishev? Huh? The Levi Yitzchak Bardishev? No, he's a big tzaddik. That you can't have to agree with me. Yeah. I'm yeah. talking about how the generation got weaker. They got weaker. <clears throat> Everybody got soft. They got a little soft. You know, risk averse. People don't want to take any risks. Where did that come from? Will either take like huge risks, like will never or they won't take big risks. Yeah, that's true. They'll take big risks, like put all the money in Bitcoin or whatever, a door, a dog coin. I don't know what that was, but whatever it might be, some nonsense. I'm, I'm, you know, but you're right. But they won't take little chances, which is crazy. I, I don't know what that is, but it's something. So I'm gonna read the Caduceus Levy. Was he was the okay? So you have the Baal Shem Tov. For easy numbers, he lived at the time of Benjamin Franklin, which is right at the time of the Revolutionary War. So it's easy to, to understand. The Baal Shem Tov had uh, had no sons. He had one daughter. Her name was Ethel. That daughter had a baby whose name was Rav Nachman. That's Rav Nachman of Breslov. Okay. So you have the the Baal Shem Tov. I'm sorry, you have the Baal Shem Tov. You have the, the son, uh, the daughter. When the Baal Shem Tov died, he didn't have a replacement in the family. There was none. So the, the person who took over Hasidism was known as the Magid of Mezerich. He was the leader of all the Hasidim. If you're a Lubavitcher, then you will say he was the first of the seven of the seven Rebbes. If you don't, if you remove him and you start with the Balatanya, then you have six. That's that's the truth. So then you have the Balatanya. So again, you have Baal Shem Tov, the Mezrich of Magid. 
then you have the generation of Rav Nachman, who is the grandchild. You have, at the same time, the Balatanya, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, or second, depending on how your brain is going. He's really, he's not called the first, but in numbers he's, he's included. But he's, they, when, they, when they talk about the first, the Alter Rebbe, that's Rup Shneer Salman, and you have Levi Yitzchak Roditcha, same time. They, as a matter of fact, the Balatanya, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, and Levi Yitzchak were mechutanim. I don't know how you say that in English, but their children married each other. And there were a couple other great rebbers of that time. But th- that's where we're talking about. So he, Levi Yitzchak, did not have a dynasty. He didn't believe in having a dynasty. When he passed away, that was the end of it. He was, his whole thing in life was defending Jewish people. That's what he was... That's what he was known for. He was a big pupil, but he was defending Jewish people. So I'm just going to read you what he says over here. He says this in Parsha's Chukas. It's five minutes, but it's very beautiful. And then we'll end. Okay? The Hine, and you should know. There are two types of people that try to straighten out or rebuke the Jewish people. Echad, there's one kind. That when he talks to the Jews to try to direct them or redirect them, it's with good words. For example, he says to all Jewish people, look how great you are. And look where your neshama is coming from. That is, Lamaila Mikisei Kavo, that it comes from above the holy chair, God's holy throne. The Godel Hanachas, Ruach, and you have to know how much pleasure Ashil Habari Yisbarach Kaviyachal, how much pleasure you're giving God mimitzos, from the mitzvah that you do. And by doing all this, you're bringing Jews close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's one type. And you have another type of person that tries to bring Jews close to God with tough words. Words like of embarrassment. Until they're forced. Until until they also go there, become religious. So you have one, one approach, which is to speak about how you're so you're you're a good Jew, you're a good boy, you're a really a good boy, and your neshama is so good. My parents didn't punish me; they would just say it's not becoming of you. You know. You know what the difference is? That person who goes and, and directs Jews in a positive way, Roy Liosman in God Israel. He's worthy to be a leader of the Jewish people, not the other one. You want to be a leader. You want people to follow, meaning your children to be there and listen to you, then you have to treat them that way. Then you can be the leader. Other way, the other way doesn't work. You'll never be the leader. You might... You might get some results from them. They're not going to lead. They're not going to go into it. It won't happen. That's what he says.
so we don't have to do it. It's easier said than done, but Again, it's my, this is more my style. Right?